Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer in all kinds of griefs and trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and at work in our lives. Uh, I thank you for what we've just been singing about, Lord, the, the beauty of our salvation, the wonder of resurrection, the hope, the living hope for life eternal with you. Uh, all of this, Lord, provided because you sent your son Jesus to the cross to die for our sin so that we could be forgiven and we could receive that gift of eternal life. Lord, the gospel changes everything. And so this morning I pray as we study this first chapter of 1 Peter that that you would use those words written by Peter to minister to our hearts, to bless us, to encourage us, to challenge us, whatever it is that we need this morning. I pray that this passage would do that in our lives. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would guard my words, help me to accurately rightly communicate your word as I speak this morning, and Lord, may it be your Holy Spirit who does that work inside us that we so desperately need, and that your living word would come alive for us today. And we will give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for what you do in us today, in Jesus' name, amen. So today is Father's Day. My first Father's Day as a father was 32 years ago. Our daughter, Lindsay, was born in 1987, and so 88 was my first Father's Day. And now, Beth and I enjoy not just kids, our kids, but our grandkids, four of them. And our most recent one was born four and a half months ago up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to our son and and daughter-in-law. This is little body for her four-month-old picture, full head of hair. And I know you guys that are here regularly are probably tired of me always showing pictures of my grandkids. But hey, that's what grandparents do, right? So, and I'd show you this because on this Father's Day, and I consider this Grandfather's Day too. Can't we, grandfathers can claim this as well, right? Okay, just making sure. Um, so, she born four and a half months ago. Beth went up a couple weeks after she was born to help, you know, with them and the transition with the new baby. But I couldn't go at that time. I was planning to go later in the spring. And then, of course, all travel was out. So I have not seen our one, our first and only granddaughter yet. But in 10 days and counting, 
we're headed up to Milwaukee, and we're going to see them. And I, for the first time, I'll be able to hold and see my granddaughter. Oh, are you coming too? So. <laughs> and Beth will get to as well. But you've already had that privilege. I haven't. So I'm looking forward to this. And just seeing her picture and thinking about going up there reminds me of the amazing miracle of new birth. Right? Now, so we tend to take this for granted because, okay, it's baby and another baby born, baby born. Life, new life, is an utter miracle. Now, you realize, of course, that God didn't have to do it the way he did. God could have, God could have chosen to sit, you know, do the stork thing, okay? God could have delivered babies on your doorstep right next to the Amazon boxes, and, you know, there was, that would be it. But instead, God chose for us to live with anticipation for nine months, watching this miracle develop. And then, if you've ever been in a birthing room as a mom or a dad or a doctor or I guess most other people aren't in the room, but when that, in that moment when that baby is born and takes his or her first breath, we get to see life being born. And again, the miracle of that. And so even through labor, and this is going to come into play too a little bit in our passage, even though through difficulty, pain, labor, with that process that goes on, sometimes for hours, sometimes not so long, but in that moment when that baby is born, it's utter joy. Joy takes the place of the pain and the suffering. And the Bible has chosen, God has chosen, in His Word, to use new birth, new life, as, a, as, an, as an illustration, as a picture of spiritual life. So conversion is called new birth. The life Jesus offers is so radically different from our old life without Him that it's like being born all over again, that miracle happening in a spiritual sense to us. Spiritual rebirth is the most wonderful, miraculous, and joyful thing that can ever happen to you once you've been born in the first time. And that's where Peter starts his letter. So we've just begun this sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. We're calling it Living Hope. That's why we sang that song again this morning just to remind us of this phrase. And I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. Take your Bibles, your phone, electronic device, whatever you have with you this morning, and follow along in 1 Peter as we jump into the first chapter. Because if you remember from last week, if you heard the message last week in our introduction, Peter, who was an apostle, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, writes this letter. It's one of only two letters that we have from the apostle Peter in the Bible. So it's vitally important to hear what he has to say. And, and this is a man, as we saw last week, who was greatly impacted by the grace and the mercy of God in his life. Jesus transformed him to this rough fisherman into a spiritual leader in the early church. He wrote this letter then to these scattered exiles, as he calls them at the beginning of the letter. These were Christians who were all spread out all over northern Asia Minor. And he writes this letter to them because they were experiencing trials persecution, difficulties, all because of their faith in Jesus. 
So they need this encouragement. They need to hear from Peter, the leader in the church. They, they need to hear what he has to say. And so he starts this letter by taking them right back to their very identity in Christ, who they are in Christ. He boosts their hope, even in the midst of persecution, by reminding them of their great salvation so that they can put that into perspective when they suffer these trials. And this opening description of salvation that Peter goes into takes the form of a doxology. We just sang so beautifully, the doxology as we call it. Peter starts, it's almost like he can't talk about salvation without going into praise. I don't know if he sang the beginning part of this letter, but you could put it into song. It's a doxology. And so our first principle this morning is that God deserves praise a doxology for offering us the full scope of salvation. And so Peter gives him that praise, and he, he summarizes in three verses the full scope of our salvation, past, present, and future. Look at salvation past in verse 3. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the first thing to notice about this great salvation is that it comes from God's mercy. That's the only way it can be received. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot be good enough to receive salvation. There's nothing we can do to get saved. It only comes as a gracious, merciful gift of God. And he calls this salvation New birth. The, the Greek word there is actually anagenesis. Do you hear anything familiar in that word? The word Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which means beginnings. And so this is about this new beginning, this new birth. That's what Jesus talked about with Nicodemus. Remember in John chapter 3, he said, you must be born again. And so the Father gives this new spiritual life places it in us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And he adds this phrase about this living hope. We talked about this a little bit last week. What does this mean, this living hope? Let me just say a little more today. It's, this, it's a contrast, really, to what we often think of as hope or even the way that we use this word hope. When we say it in our current English language, we say, well, I hope this happens or I hope I get this. And, and so it's like a wish. It's like a maybe. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. That's not how Peter uses the word hope. That's not living hope. It's not wishful hope. It's not false hope. It's not misplaced hope. Living hope is real, active, substantial, reliable because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Peter tells us. He's basically saying, you have this living hope. It's alive because Jesus is alive. It's because it's been secured for you by a living Savior who died and came back to life. That's why your hope is living. And that living hope then turns our eyes, because that then makes us look to the future. Okay, well, then what, how is it living? How will it continue to live? And so he talks about that in verse 4, salvation future. 
into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So Peter is talking here about this eternal spiritual wealth that God bequeaths to us as his family members. Now think about this. What he says about this inheritance, it is death-proof, it is sin-proof, it is time-proof. Or to use his words, it won't perish Like, you know, if you have your favorite plant and you put it outside and you forget to water it and it dies, that can't happen to your inheritance. It won't spoil. So, like the steak that you put out on the counter, took it out of the fridge, put it on the counter, intending to put it in the oven, but you forgot about it. You went away and you come back and it's been sitting there out of the fridge too long and it's spoiled. Inheritance doesn't spoil. And it won't fade. It's not like you're your favorite t-shirt or the paint on your house or something that over time begins to lose its luster. That's not true of this this inheritance. So in all these ways, Peter is describing this inheritance that we have from God, that it is secure. And Peter tells us, in fact, that it's kept in heaven for us. He's reminding us that God himself is keeping guard over it, watching it, keeping it safe for us. Just imagine that there is no security system here on earth that can match God watching over your inheritance in heaven. Nothing. And there's no better, no safer investment than this inheritance with God. You know, this, this contrast always gets to me. I I like to think about it this way because if you've done any kind of investing with money here on earth, you you know that you kind of have a choice or somewhere in between. Either if you want low risk, if you want to make sure you kind of keep and protect that investment, then you're also going to have low returns on that money. Just low risk means low return. If you want a high return on your investment, then you've got to take more risk. And so you're always finding that balance between low risk and high risk and low returns and high returns and trying to figure out where you are. That's part of the decisions you have to make in investing. Peter says about this inheritance, spiritual inheritance in heaven, there is no risk, not just low risk, no risk, and the ultimate high rewards because... God promises all the blessings of heaven. So, where do you want to invest your life? Where are you investing yourself? Our future salvation is secured by God. That's the past. That's the future. But what about the present? Peter addresses that too. Salvation present is in verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So follow Peter's thought here. He's saying, if I've been saved, I've been born again. That's happened in the past. I've been born again to this new life in Christ. And he's also saying that one day I'll be saved completely, utterly, New body, new life, spiritually, in the presence of God. That's my inheritance in heaven. But then there's this in-between time. Our Christian life here on earth. What about this? What do we do now? And this is so good, what Peter says. Those in a faith relationship with God are shielded by His power. 
Shielded by his power. It's a great word. It's actually a military term. And that makes sense, right, even in our English translation, this, a shield. And it's in the present tense. So he says, now God is shielding you. So not only is he guarding your inheritance that's yet to come up in heaven, it's not like he's just standing up there just waiting up there for us to show up. He is also actively involved in our lives and our world right now, shielding us. But from what? Now, our tendency is to sometimes think, well, God should be shielding us from bad things, from hard things, from trials, from difficulties, from sorrow and sadness. But that's not what He is shielding us from. Because part of living in a fallen world is that we experience those things, those difficulties. We experience good days and bad days. We all experience joys and sorrows. That's part of life on this earth. That's not what Peter is saying God shields us from. But what he does shield us from is the enemy, from Satan's attack to try to steal our salvation. He shields us from the consequences of sin that would destroy us. See, the enemy would love to come in and take away your salvation. And the only reason he can't is because God is shielding you. That's what Peter is promising. I ran across this great um, Father's Day story, an illustration of this. So uh, Sean Cunningham took his nine-year-old son Landon to a spring training baseball game. Obviously not this year, <laughs> a couple of years ago. So for those of you that are missing baseball, here's a little baseball story for you. So they go to this game down in Florida, spring training game. They've got close seats right down there near the field. It's the Atlanta Braves playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Danny Ortiz is up to bat for the Pirates, and he swings at a pitch, misses, and in the process of this huge swing, the bat slips out of his hand and flies right towards those lower levels of the stands, right at Sean and his son Landon. And everybody else around them sees this coming, but little Landon, nine years old, is, is in the process of looking down because he's texting a picture that he took of the game to his mom. He doesn't see the bat flying towards him. But Sean did. The dad did. And in that moment, and you dads know this, there's this, there's this protective dad instinct that just kind of kicks in. And without even thinking, he reaches out to protect his son. And a photographer happened to catch that very moment in an amazing picture. Look at this. There's Sean, the sunglasses, reaching his arm across. Look at his son, Landon, has just looked up. He's totally clueless, this bat flying right towards his forehead. And his dad's arm comes between the bat and his face. That's shielding. Sean suffered a deep bruise to his arm, but it was a whole lot less than what would have happened to his son's face had the bat connected. That's a father. That's our heavenly father shielding us from the bats that the enemy would love to throw at us and hit us with every day. You are being shielded. If you know Jesus Christ, you're being shielded by the father on a daily basis from the attacks of the enemy. God will not lose any of his spiritual warriors. In his army, no one gets left behind. All those who have been born again will realize their inheritance because God is shielding them. And all this is important to remember as we go to the next part of the passage, okay? Our salvation, 
past, present, future. Remember all this as we go to point two. God receives glory as trials refine our faith. Verse six. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he said, in all this you greatly rejoice. So you have to say, well, what is the this? He's referring back to what he just said, those three verses describing our salvation, three verses of salvation, past, present, and future, the new birth, the living hope, the inheritance, the protective power of God. All of that, he says, gives you great joy. And you need that because trials are coming if they haven't come already. So here we are, verse 6. It's, we're just barely into Paul's letter, and already he's dealing with this difficult subject of trials in our lives. Why? Because the people he's writing to were suffering. Maybe you are too. So Peter goes on to say, you know, when the trials come, it's the joy of our salvation that remains. There may be pain and suffering in the trial. The trial itself is not necessarily your joy. Your joy is your salvation in the midst of that trial. Let's take this apart a little bit to see what Peter is saying because he's, he talks about this to the readers saying that they had been suffering grief. That's an important word here, grief in all kinds of trials. So all the kinds of trials, he's, Paul, Peter's not identifying one particular trial, one particular difficulty, one specific kind of persecution. He's just kind of lumping it all together and says, no matter what. And, and that's true for us, too. And I'm thankful that Peter didn't do that because now we can look at this and we can say, you know, for any kinds of trials that come into our lives, this applies. And they do come. So maybe it's an illness or an accident or some kind of a loss or a conflict in your life or with somebody in your life. Maybe it's a disappointment that's entered into your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's a broken relationship or, or death of a loved one. Any of those things are trials that can bring grief into our lives. Grief is this emotional pain, the spiritual struggle. It's all that's involved in that. The, the word actually literally means a stirring up. It's like, you know, when the, when the rain comes, a storm comes, and that creek or that river or that pond just turns muddy because all the water is churning up the stuff from the bottom. And what was a clear river or pond, now it was brown with mud. And that's the word here. Grief does that in our lives. It churns up these emotions and these struggles, and, and everything gets muddied by that. See, Peter is acknowledging that. He, he's not... He's not taking the easy route here in this letter. He's not saying, yeah, hey, there are trials, but just kind of put on a happy face, just ignore it, just go on, just love Jesus. No, he says, trials bring grief. It's going to stir you up. It's going to tear you up. But notice what else he says. Trials are only for a little while. In comparison to eternity, these trials are temporary They're short-lived. And Peter also says about them, he says, you may have had to suffer them. Don't miss that 
that phrase in there. You may have had to suffer that. So honestly, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't like that phrase because I don't want to have to suffer or go through trials. I mean, those are the very things that I want God to protect me from, right? Like when we were talking about being shielded, I said, okay, God, shield me from those things, from the hard things, from the bad things, from the things that make me sad and make me suffer. Those are the things I want you to protect me from. Peter says, you know, sometimes we have to go through those trials. Because God knows we need them. But why? What good do they do? What purpose do they serve? Well, Peter tells us, verse 7, and he uses a word picture here. These trials, that's what he's referring to, these things, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, Take a minute and think about this, this metaphor, this picture that Peter is drawing here, gold being refined by fire. Now, if you saw the video I sent out yesterday, I was just having a little fun with it, and as Beth videotaped me trying to melt gold over a flame, it, that's not how it happens. This is more how it happens. So I did a little research to find out, and this is an ancient practice of melting down gold. And you have to bring the heat up to about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit for this to happen. And it's not just to shape the gold. This, this process of heating the gold is so that the impurities will come to the surface. And when they do, this dross, as it's called, can be scraped off so that when that gold cools and hardens, it's purer than it was before. That's the refining process of gold. That's what Peter is describing here. And he's saying the same thing happens in our lives so that when the trials come, yes, it's hot, it's hard, it hurts, but it's necessary because it brings out those impurities, the struggles, the doubts, the sin issues, those need to bubble to the surface so that God can scrape them off, so that we can deal with them, so that we can confess those things, so that God can purify us. That's what happens in the process of trials in our lives, if we will allow God, by His Spirit, to do this kind of refining in us. You know, when, when trials come, it reveals what's inside. And it's not always pretty. It's, it's, it's not always fun, not fun, to go through that process. But remember the goal here. When Peter says... It's to prove the genuine character of your faith. So he's assuming that the faith of these believers is genuine. He's saying what the trials are going to do is going to prove that it's genuine. Because in the process, you're going to be refined and clean, and God's going to use this to work in you and prove your faith. So the trials come not to discourage you, not to get you down, not to push you under, but to raise you up, to prove your faith which Peter says then is more valuable than gold itself. How could that be? Because gold, the gold of this earth, will perish one day. It will be no more. But your faith, your faith that is proven, the faith that is genuine, that lasts forever because that's your relationship with God. James says it this way, another great familiar passage on this, James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, 
Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is how maturity happens in your spiritual life. It's through trials. So refined faith is a good thing. And it's not just good for us, and it's part of our growth and maturity, but it's also good for the glory of God. Look at verse 7, the last, last part of it. May result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you know what, what Peter's picturing here? He's saying, you know, that one day we will be the examples of God's grace in heaven. In fact, the Bible says we'll be trophies of His grace. We will be the representatives there proving that the grace of God has worked. It saved us. And so we will be the ones there in heaven giving all praise and glory and honor to God. That's what the book of Revelation describes and pictures for us. And so it's our refined faith that will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. So our living hope It doesn't eliminate trials or the grief that they bring. It brings a balance to that grief so that when we suffer grief, it actually is what pushes us to then remember and appreciate our faith. The grief shows us how much we need that faith. It brings us home in a sense. So a couple of days ago, Beth and I were on a walk, as we often do in our neighborhood, and there were these dark clouds kind of approaching. You could see them coming our way. And Beth said to me, I think we better turn around and head home. Looks like rain's coming. I said, no, it's still a long ways off. We can walk another street. Come on, let's do one more street. So we did. Well, guess what? Yeah, she was right. <laughs> the rain started coming, and we, were, we went one street too far because we were about one street short of getting home. The rain started coming down. And it was one of those st- storms where just the, it just opens up, this sudden downpour of rain, not just the sprinkles, downpour. And so we're getting soaked. We're running for home. Why? Because that's where the shelter was. So we're running for shelter. The rain made us want, desire, motivated us to head to our shelter. And that's what happens with trials. When trials come in our lives, difficulties, when the rain comes, it makes you that much more longing for heaven, longing for home. Thankful for your salvation. Thank you for your shelter in Jesus Christ. Finally, Peter transitions from trials to remind us why we still have joy even in our trials. Number three, principle three, God gives joy as our faith leads us to salvation. We have joy as our faith leads us to salvation. So remember who's writing the letter here. This is Peter. He's an apostle. He walked with Jesus in the flesh for three years. He had the privilege of seeing Jesus in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and now he's writing to these believers who have never seen Jesus in person. And and Peter is just amazed at that kind of faith. And so he says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You've got this joy because your faith is so incredible. Remember when when Jesus said to Thomas, he appeared to him and to the disciples after the resurrection, Thomas was doubting that Jesus had been risen. So Jesus shows himself to Thomas. 
Okay, now you've seen me, now you believe. And so Jesus says in John 20, 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. But notice what else he says? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is referring to everybody else who would come after him. For these readers of the book of 1 Peter in Asia Minor and for us sitting right here on Father's Day in Marble Hill, Georgia, who have never seen him. And yet we believe in him. And yet we love him. Jesus says there's an extra blessing. That kind of faith. And Peter comes full circle in verse 9. He says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So why is it that faith brings joy? Because the end result of current faith will be that final and complete salvation in heaven. Because your faith walk with Jesus now, what you're doing now and walking with Jesus is, is what's going to take you home to him one day. So how do we rejoice in the midst of trials and suffering and sorrow right here, right now? Because by faith, we know our final destination. We know what's coming. We know that our trials are going to end as the Father one day wraps us up in his arms. I mean, talk about a Father's Day. That's going to be the best Father's Day of all. We know that we'll be with our Savior Jesus, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that he will heal every hurt. We know that's our destination, and that gives us joy in the midst of life's trials here and now because the end result of our faith will be life with him. I mentioned to you last week that uh, about my dad, it's only appropriate to talk about him on Father's Day too. A week ago, last Sunday, would have been his birthday, June 14th. And he died in 2009, and it just so happens that 2009 had the same day-date lineup as this year in 2020. So June 14th, my dad's birthday, was a Sunday in 2009 as it was this year. My dad passed away on June 18th, 2009, which was a Thursday. June 18th was a Thursday this past week. The funeral for my dad was on Sunday, June 21, 2009, and it was Father's Day. Just like today, June 21 is Father's Day. When my dad passed away, he passed away at home. My mom and I were there. Beth was there. Our family doctor came to the house, was there with us. He told us that we only had a matter of minutes left with my dad. So we were right there when he took his final breaths. It was a time of great grief and pain. But it was also a time of peace and joy. How could that possibly be? My dad is dying. How could he have been at peace as he knew he was dying? Because he knew that he was not, his life was not ending, that his salvation was progressing. He was moving from the trials and troubles of life here and now, the progress, is the process of his salvation, to his final and complete salvation when he would be welcomed home in heaven. He knew that. My mom knew that. I knew that. And that gave us joy. That's what Peter is talking about here. That's what he's saying. He's saying you know the end. Because you know the end, you can have joy 
and what you're experiencing now. And so as we conclude on this Father's Day, just remember what your Heavenly Father has done for you. Remember that your past new birth guarantees your future in heaven, and that gives you joy in the present even as you walk through trials. Or if you want it boiled down even more, I'll just give you a few phrases. Joyful birth leads to purposeful trials which take us to a glorious end. That's the message of 1 Peter 3 through 9. We're on a journey of faith. So we look back with joy to the beginning, our new birth. We look even with joy at our trials now because we know they have a purpose. And we look with joy to our salvation to be finished and completed one day in heaven. Paul, a contemporary of Peter, said this, said it this way, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these promises. Thank you for providing this so great a salvation. Thank you that we can look at what you've done and giving us this new birth. We can look at what you're doing in our lives right now, shielding us, protecting us, and walking with us through the trials and the sorrows and the grief of life, and that you have secured our salvation in heaven that is being guarded by the Father, and that one day we will be with you forever. Thank you for the scope of our salvation and what it means for us in walking through life's challenges right here and now. Lord, thank you for our living hope. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room or hearing this message online right now, I pray that if they are in any way uncertain about, about their relationship with you, about the assurance of their inheritance that lasts forever, Lord, I pray that they would come in humility in grace, repent of their sin, give their lives to you that they may have this inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a song that reminds us of that promise that one day we will rise with him. This is the promise of the completion of our salvation. Let's stand together and sing it.